you know. Right. Today, Hebrews chapter 13, we've been in this study a number of weeks, and the reason is that uh, Hebrews is at the same time an extraordinarily rich book. It's also has a lot of interpretive challenges and, and uh, you know, it's just a personal uh, opinion that uh, of mine that Hebrews is the most challenging um, New Testament book. It, it just uh, is full of uh, a content that requires us uh, to pull from the Old Testament and uh, that sort of thing. But it also requires a lot of us to get out of some pre-commitments that, that we may pick up along the way from, from sincere, but I think maybe not a good solid teaching that, um, you know, if, if someone were to have some struggles, it means they're just not a Christian at all, that kind of thing. And when you get into Hebrews, though, what you find is, an, is uh, the readers he's writing to have been persecuted. And, and I've emphasized that over and over. But as you read the book, you don't uh, see it in, in explicit terms until chapter 13. Uh, but then uh, I said 13, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 10. Uh, but then as you get to chapter 12, and he's talking about this concept, uh, it's, it's translated in most of the modern translations as discipline. In the King James, it was chastisement, which sends the wrong uh, message. And I tried to emphasize it was God's training program. But in, in the midst of talking about that training program, where, where the author is basically saying, you know, God has allowed this persecution, not, not that God sent it to you per se, but he's allowed it. Uh, and he's using it uh, as part of your your training. But in the midst of that, he makes the comment, none of you have uh, suffered to the point of, of death yet. It seems like they had suffered, but they, they had not been martyred. It just emphasizes, again, the persecution. We're going to see um, some, some references in chapter 13 back to that concept of the persecution, so that when you're reading this last chapter, don't don't lose sight of of that big picture, uh, that context. It's important. We most of us, but but I, I certainly wouldn't assume everybody that might hear this recording uh, is is free of persecution. Most of us are somewhat free of persecution, especially uh, in the United States. Uh, but that doesn't mean the book doesn't have application. Uh, if the author of this epistle is telling persecuted people to stand firm. Uh, don't don't let the persecution uh, keep you from going to church, for example, then that has some implications, uh, you know, for, for all of us. Uh, but the, the training program, how God uses trials, the, this is all good, uh, good stuff. So so with that, um, Hebrews 13, uh, my Bible says final exhortations. And, and I don't like that because, uh, the, you know, the editors have added that. And of course, it's in a sense, it's true. Um, I realize if, if any of you have had to go watch Marvel movies uh, you know, about superheroes, you have to sit through the edits because there's something at the end of them and the, the children will make you sit through them. But in, in, in most movies, as soon as the, as the credits come on at the end, you just get up and leave, right? And, and a lot of times you kind of get to the end of a, a Bible book. We may miss the fact that there's like super rich stuff right at the tail end. So just, just have that in mind when we go through this. Um, all application stuff, verse thir or chapter 13, verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Most of the uh, commands in Scripture are to love one another, and the verb used is agapao, or you, you may have heard the, the word agape, okay? Agape is, is love as a noun, but agapao is the verb to, to love. And, and when we read love one another, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, it's that word agapao, to have agape love. Agape love is not um, the love of an emotional bond. It's the love of doing for people. That's why you could either love your enemy or even love somebody that, that you don't know, right? That you, you could love somebody you've, you've, you've never, uh, you know, per se met. Um, people uh, who maybe not even met the Apostle Paul, uh, that were in the church in Philippi. I'm sure many of them had met him, but probably some had not, but they they sent money to him, uh, attending to his needs. They showed love in that way. So you you can love people that you don't like. You can love people that you don't even, you know, maybe even personally uh, know. And you can even love people who are your enemies. But this says brotherly love. And, and that's that word Philadelphia. Uh, that we have a city in the United States in Pennsylvania. Um, might want to make comments about that, but won't. 
but uh, Philadelphia is it carries the emotion of the love though that there's a bond a bond there, and that's to be expected within a within a family. So he has the idea, especially among their church brethren, that he, it's not that they're not doing it. He says, let it continue, let brotherly love continue. What will that look like? Well, he's going to give some examples, uh, but he adds, don't don't neglect to show hospitality. Uh, in the ancient world, there was, uh, and you see it throughout the Bible, you see it in the Old Testament and in the New, um, a custom of, of showing hospitality. Uh, when people traveled, it was difficult uh, often to have places to stay while you traveled, so you, you would stay at people's homes. Uh, and so he says to show hospitality. He says, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. The uh, King James has this uh, unique way of saying it. Some people have entertained angels unawares. Um, there's there's a, a debate about whether this angels means um, angels in the technical sense, um, spiritual beings God created that in Hebrews chapter one are uh, said to be servants of those who inherit salvation. But the word angel is is a um, it's a transliteration of a Greek word uh, angelos that in its uh, non-technical sense is just a, a human messenger, right? Somebody who carries a message. Uh, so the debate is, which is it? Um, I, I won't be dogmatic either way, given that the first two chapters uh, were devoted to addressing angels in the technical sense. Um, I think it's quite likely that's what he primarily has in mind. And he's probably thinking of um, an Old Testament incident where Abraham and Sarah entertained uh, some angels that you can read about in the book of Genesis. Um, so, so he's just saying, you know, show show hospitality to people, and and you know who knows um, that hospitality may open up a door where God uses either human people, right, humans or angels. Um, to minister back to you, to bring some message uh, to you in some sense. You may you may welcome uh, God's angels. Um, remember those who are in prison, he says in, in verse 3. I won't read it, but if you go back to chapter 10, verse 34, in the midst of talking about the actual persecution that had occurred, um, the author mentions his own imprisonment, uh, his own persecution in that way. So this is something that came up in chapter 10, and, and here it is here. What he has in mind um, isn't just like a, um, a, a general prison ministry, as good as that is. He has in mind that, that Christians have been imprisoned for their faith. And you need to remember them, right? Because of the reason they're there, right? He's not saying, you know, remember so-and-so in prison who, who killed somebody. Remember so-and-so in prison who, who spoke openly of Jesus Christ, got arrested, and and uh, minister their needs because the ancient world, um, when you were in prison, it wasn't necessarily the case that you were provided food, um, right? So so uh, you you may be imprisoned, and those who are friends or family are the ones that are going to make sure that you get uh, taken care of. So uh, and he says to to empathize. He describes the very uh, manner of empathy where you remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them. Right. Uh, do, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the idea. And it's a specific application um, where where Christians have been put in prison. He says, just like, you know, as if they were you and if they were, you know, think of yourself being in there, being mistreated uh, as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. Um, um, I don't think they had constitutional rights in their prison the way we think of them in, in the United States. Uh, in the United States, um, if if a prisoner is, is and, and of course, things like this happen in prisons here, uh, but when they do, uh, the prisoner has the right to um, file a lawsuit up in federal court and try to, you know, bring bring the light of day and bring some justice to where there's been these kinds of things happen. In the ancient world, you just didn't have rights, you know, and, and you were in prison, you were going to be mistreated, you might not be fed. So you need some people to remember you, not only in prayer, but with their pocketbook. Uh, then he, he adds, and by the way, just, just he, he, he's a little, it, it may seem at first kind of all over the place here early in 13, then it's going to get real organized. But if, if you have a question, just, just chime in. Um, I wanted to get through verse six and then kind of open it up for comments. But uh, verse four seems to move from a, to a totally different uh, thing, which he says is, 
Um, marriage is to be honored by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled uh, because God will uh, judge the sexually immoral and the adulterers. There's a, there's a lot there. Let me suggest to you that verses four, five, and six are about um, covetousness or coveting, and um, they're about contentment. And at a high level, uh, this was described to me years ago by a, a mentor who's, who's been gone a long time, but the way he described it is uh, when we're discontent as Christians, we're looking at God and, and, and saying that what he has provided, not just, not just money and finances, everything, including um, uh, the marriage relationship, the friends, the church, all the things in our life, he says, when you're discontent, you're looking at God and telling him his provision is inadequate for you. Uh, and that stuck me, with, with me for years. And, and it's interesting that you see throughout the Bible, and especially a lot of focus in the New Testament, on having a heart of gratitude and, and not being discontent. And, and we tend to let our discontent come out of uh, changing circumstances. Um, we, our source of contentment has to be vertical. Okay, it has to be rooted in the relationship with God because He doesn't change. But if we seek to find our our joy in the things of this world, which John would say in First John, or are going to pass away, um, then we're looking to the creation for a contentment that only the Creator can provide, and it simply isn't there to be to be had. And so you see uh, Paul saying uh, elsewhere, the Apostle Paul, that he's learned to be content. Essentially, I'm paraphrasing, when I have much, because there were times when he, you know, he sort of was, uh, you know, he had money in, the, money in his wallet, food on the plate. He says, I've learned to be content when I don't have anything. There were times when he was in prison and things like that. So just th think about that at a high level about contentment when you look at what he's, he's saying here. Um, one of the places where people uh, get discontent is in their relationships, and certainly a marriage is among those. And I'll, I'll, I'll say a few things that are probably chasing rabbits here, but just to give you some thoughts. Um, marriage is to be honored by all. Uh, it's translated here as a verb, but by the way, that it, it's actually not a verb there. Um, it, it's, it's not a bad translation, but um, he, he, he says marriage is, is honorable. He uses a noun, but it's a noun that means... Um, and it's the reason this translation of honored above all is, is, is probably helpful. Um, it, it's a noun, timios, that has the idea of something being precious or valuable. Okay, it's that, that sense. And, and that's essentially what he's saying is that marriage is, is precious. It is valuable. And in and, 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 and thinking of it that way, views it as a gift from God. And that's his implication. And, and because it's a gift from God, uh, it should be honored uh, by all. And then he says, in, in the marriage bed kept un, undefiled, uh, because why? Uh, if you defile it, God judges the sexually immoral and the adulterer. So um, here's here's the rabbit on, on that. Um, weeks and weeks ago, I covered Matthew 19, and I'm not going to try to repeat all that, but I'll allude to it a little. You could go and and, and listen to that. I'm not dogmatic about my interpretation, but I have a good reason uh, for challenging the common uh, evangelical position that uh, divorce is essentially, um, you know, you, you're never to get a divorce, but you're allowed to when there's adultery. And um, and I'm going to caveat all of this by saying that, that I, I, I think there's reasons why sometimes at a minimum people have to get out of a a relationship, or at least out of the out of the the house, they they have to be set apart. Um, uh, I've I've recommended uh, more than once that that a, a lady take herself out of, of a place where um, I, I uh, you know from everything I knew it was abusive and possibly even putting um, her or her children at risk. And and there's some, some conservatives who would not have said those things. Um, but but all of that said, it, you know, so you don't. I don't want to be misunderstood where I'm coming from. Um, I would suggest that the evangelical common understanding that there's a, a sort of a marriage exception for adultery where you're now free to get a divorce is uh, nowhere taught in scripture. And, and and when you look to Matthew 19, which is really Jesus being asked a legal question under the law of Moses about when people can get a divorce, 
um, he, he goes beyond the law of Moses and he roots what he has to say in Genesis chapter one, which is where God more or less defines marriage. And Jesus gives that same definition. Uh, you know, a, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh, which is not a um, that that may be represented uh, physically through uh, the sexual relationship. That's not what he's talking about there. Uh, he views two uh, complementary people uh, fitting together like two pieces of a puzzle and forming one uh, from the eyes of God. And then Jesus says what God brought together, okay, God's making the one flesh, uh, no man can tear asunder. Uh, within the Jewish uh, context, though, uh, the marriage uh, was always preceded by a legal betrothal for usually approximately a year. You see this with Mary and Joseph when uh, Mary gets pregnant, and, and we know before Joseph knows, as we read the story, that it's from the Holy Spirit. It's not because she was with another man. Uh, Joseph at first assumes what any man would have assumed when he sees a baby bump on the woman he's been betrothed to for a long time, and God sends him a dream and, and, and tells him what's what's going on. Um, but that betrothal period was a, uh, a legally binding contract uh, to be married. And, and you had that waiting period, and the marriage wasn't uh, consummated until after that. And what I suggested about Matthew 19 is that, you know, Jesus didn't say uh, divorce was only permitted when there's adultery. He, he specifically didn't use that word. He uses a much broader word, which was porneia, that we get the word pornography from. And most translations, like the King James, translated as fornication, but some translations have put the word adultery because of their commitment to that evangelical position. Um, Jesus seemed to have said, if something happens during that one-year betrothal that indicates that the person you're betrothed to has engaged in fornication, okay, uh, then you are free to break off the betrothal, which is what um, Joseph was going to do with Mary, and he was going to try to do it in a private way, not to, to add shame to her. Um, his disciples in Matthew 19 respond in utter shock. They, they say, if that's the case, how would anyone ever get married? Because they got the implication that Jesus said, once, once you're actually married, it's permanent. And, and, uh, and, and so that's a pretty strong teaching. Uh, if Jesus had said, well, you know, you, you have to stay married, but if there's some sexual sin within the marriage, then you, you you can get out of it. Then they would not have responded the way they did, I think. And, and, and the point of chasing all this rabbit is to say that here in this passage, um, you see both words. He says, God will judge the sexually immoral. That's a noun. It's pornos. Uh, it, it's 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 related to that that term that Jesus used in Matthew 19 when he said it's set for sexual immorality. These are the people that do the sexual immorality. In other words, this could be translated: He's going to judge the fornicators and the adulterers. Well, wait a second. I I the the, the I was taught, and, I, and it really wasn't. I'm, I'm not being overly critical. I'm just asking us to to make sure when we read the Bible, we give words meaning. Uh, and, and it's got to be the meaning they have. I was always taught that what Jesus was saying was, except for adultery, but you look here, they're two different words. You see that? It, it has the pornos, that's the uh, fornication, and adultery. Um, so, uh, yeah, and then uh, let's see if I can put the chat on. Is uh, someone said uh, pornos is where we get the word? Yeah, but pornography is 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 comes from these words porneia or pornos. A lot of our English words uh, come from the Greek. It doesn't mean that they always mean the same thing. Um, but absolutely, uh, the word pornography has that root word uh, pornos, and in graphy is also from a Greek word. Uh, uh, graphe is writing. Okay. And of course, they didn't have photographs in the ancient world, but you could draw or write, you could graphe, and, and it's just a compound word from, from the Greek, just like Philadelphia that I mentioned earlier is a compound word from the, from the Greek. So, so um, anyway, it's a bit of a rabbit, but, but this is a good place where you can see how the, a Bible writer uh, views uh, fornication as being a little bit different than adultery. 
and and um, and in in adultery, probably we could say has a uh, you know is always confined to the idea of of marriage. Uh, the fornication could be broader than that, and I think he uses both here, uh, you know, for a different reason than the reason Jesus will talk about both concepts and when he talks about marriage. And here, his focus is on the marriage relationship, but he gives a broad sweep to it. And and so I asked the question, and I'll pause. Let's see what you think. And I'm glad, like someone's asked about the pornography. Um, I, I you know, if 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 adultery is the issue, then um, despite what Jesus said in Matthew five when he he talked about adultery and how you, you know if you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery, you violated one of the Ten Commandments. Um, people tend to not think of it that way in our culture. Okay, Christians tend to not think of it that way. So they would separate out um, pornography or an online relationship that isn't uh, consummated in the sense of two people getting together, but people live out a sort of flirting uh, affair on uh, through the Internet and stuff. What do you think? I mean, does that does that defile the marriage bed in the sense of which the writer here says? I would think it would be whatever the intent of the person is. So if they have an online <clears throat> arrangement, not arrangement, uh, if they're inappropriate in their minds and thinking things in their minds, then God knows that. And they're, mm -hmm. they're doing something wrong. They need to rebound and they need to confess their sin and quit it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Didn't he, like he actually kind of raised the bar. So it's right. Not just the actual act, but it's actually the intent of our heart. Now that is right. The that, way it even matter. It, that's, that's exactly it. It's, you know, the, the sermon on the Mount takes the righteousness of the law that people had misunderstood to only get at the outward or external conduct, for example, of committing adultery and not the internal parts of the heart. So, so think about what Jesus was saying when he said, you know, you, you have that lust in your heart, you've done it already. Um, the pornography clearly, clearly falls under that, even though um, they didn't have, uh, you know, they, they couldn't buy a, a Playboy magazine back then. But, but uh, now, of course, you know, this idea of guarding our hearts becomes so much more difficult because um, when most of us were children, uh, this stuff was available, but it wasn't at the click of a button on a computer, okay? Uh, nor, nor was it on all of the TV programming. So, so it's very much there. And, and, and um, uh, you, I have found, and, and, and the pornography is so common, um, uh, something like 50% of men uh, use it and about 20% of women. And, and that those statistics pretty well hold close in, in, in churches. But I've had so many have that, that idea that, well, this isn't adultery, it's something else. Um, it not only is in the eyes of God, in a lot of relationships, because um, I, I the things usually I, I find out about them when it's too late to, to do a lot, but uh, one spouse finds out about it, he or she thinks of it as adultery. Uh, it's it's a big, it takes a big toll. Uh, let me let me ratchet it up a bit more, and I'll move on. I think you, you kind of get the idea, but 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 here he he's got a broad swath over over this. Um, and, and by the way, um, um, this is rabbit too. But why is pornography so dangerous? Besides the fact that whether they're willing or not, it's an exploitation of the people in the pictures, but the person who uses the pornography, men in particular, will almost always uh, use masturbation as a part of that, which is its own problem, and, and it becomes a substitute for real sexual intimacy with their spouse. The other part is, is that... Um, it's it's all a fake. It's the it's it's the wanting the the flesh desire without any uh, component of a covenant commitment to a real person with a real relationship. Uh, it is extraordinarily destructive. And uh, anyway, and I and I've, I've I've watched within churches multiple marriages fall apart because of it. 
It doesn't stay contained. It always gets discovered. But even when when somebody thinks they're getting away with it, um, their marriage is is already in, in great jeopardy uh, because a lot of things are doing. So so having said that, I'll ratchet up one more lo- link, which is um, uh, fantasizing about other people. OK, uh, your thought life can can take you to a place that's adulterous. And and so when we think of passages like Paul writing that we should take every thought uh, captive to the obedience to Christ, um, that is 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 not easy necessarily. Um, Paul would say elsewhere that you can set your affections on that which is good. Um, the, the idea that that we're just sort of uh, we can't we can't change we can't transform we can't have any control of our thought life is just wrong. Uh, we're we're told to set our affections, but but. Um, Anyway, I, I don't want to chase a rabbit a lot, but if anyone had any comments or thoughts on that, I thought it was a place to throw out a few of these things to, for our thinking. Yeah, it's it, it's you're you're a hundred percent right on, and most people do not understand what you just explained because you have sinful thoughts, and you need to take those captive. Right, guard your soul with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. If you fail to do that, then what happens is that those thoughts become ingrained and they become attitudes. And then those attitudes manifest themselves as outward actions. And, you know, with pornography, they may only be limited to yourself, but you're also supporting that whole industry, right? So you are involving other people. You think you're just involving yourself, but if nobody when on those sites, they wouldn't exist. So you're supporting those sites. And then eventually what's going to happen is you're not going to just limit it to that. You're going to go out and, you know, commit adultery or fornication with another person. I mean, if you don't take those thoughts captive, they're going to become more and more destructive and involve more and more people. So you have to break that cycle. If you don't break that cycle, then, you know, it's just going to continue. Yeah, and, and and I'll throw in a word. I've never liked this word, but it is somewhat true to life. I, I don't like the word addiction from the standpoint that um, I've heard people in a church context, men are usually the ones I'm talking to, uh, telling me, you don't understand, I, you know, I have an addiction. Um, but there is a sense in which that happens. That is, there, there, and there is science behind the fact that you can have... Um, changes in 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 the sort of the, the chemical reactions in your in your brain associated with certain uh compulsive or addictive behaviors including things like pornography and and as well um uh infidelity actually going through with it where you know with with uh, uh, other 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 people or prostitutes or whatever and and um and, and so that's that's a a, a thing that's, that can be a, a real thing and and the thing about all addictions is you never get enough. It it becomes uh, whether it's drugs or or the porn or whatever you never uh, you never get enough. Uh, one last thing about this is that um, you know I've mentioned some books before, but I'll, I'll say them again. Again, it's it's a rabbit, but um, I th- I think people that um, even if you've been married a long time. Um, there's a lot of really unhelpful marriage books out there, but there's a few that are really, really good. And I recommend trying to find a good one there every year or two and read it. And I especially recommend it for the men because um, um, men tend to have less insight sometimes into the health of their marriage and, and then, 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 then the wives in some sense. And, and so a few that I've mentioned, I've mentioned before Gary Thomas's Sacred Marriage. And that that book is, is it has a lot of focus on um being in a marriage where maybe all your needs aren't being met, where things aren't always easy, and in a culture that says, "Look, if you're not getting what you what you want, you you leave," and he brings more biblical perspective to that. Um, but within marriages, uh, while there are those who um, y- y- you know will engage in in behavior they shouldn't, uh, just because that's what they want to do. Uh, typically they were doing that before they were married. And if you marry a fornicator, they will fornicate within the marriage. That's just a fact. 
but um, but there's others who who reach a point where, um, and this is this is actually the more common way affairs happen. They reach a point where needs that they, they do not believe their needs are being met, and and something happens usually over the course of a fairly lengthy period of time, not just like as an abrupt, you know, once you know one moment they they just decided to have an affair, uh, but they meet somebody usually at work where they uh, feel like their needs are being met. And this is true of, of men and women. And so just with that in thought in mind, um, the, the book, and I, now I'm forgetting the author, but you probably know it, The Five Love Languages, that is an, a really excellent book to, to help uh, husbands and wives kind of be sensitive to this matter of, of learning how to meet needs that, that you're aware of. And the focus of The Five Love Languages is that um, not everybody when we talk about a need to be loved, not everybody kind of thinks of that the same way. Um, and and uh, men and women don't always think about it the same way, but uh, it's a good book. And I mean, the audio version is like less than six hours. It's, it's, it's worth reading. There's a, another similar one called His Needs, Her Needs by Willard. I think the first name is Willard, but his last name is Harley, H-A-R-L-E-Y, like a motorcycle. Um, those two books are outstanding. Uh, we're just thinking through... And and because he, here, here's why they're outstanding. You may read it and find one of your blind spots, because we tend to interpret uh, fulfilling the needs of the spouse through the way we would see our own needs fulfilled, and they may not see it the same way. So I hope that makes sense. But those are two great books: His Needs, Her Needs. Not long, easy reader. Read it. Uh, five love languages. Just if you could pick up one of those books every couple of years and just just to you know, it, it'll be a help. Uh, let me move on to this so we can blow through some of this pretty quickly. Um, he says in verse five, now, now this marriage thing is about contentment. He's telling you when he says, don't don't be an adulterer and don't be, uh, you know, your porn or, or all these other things people can do. He says you need to be content with what God has provided you, including in the area of sexuality. Um, keep your life, he says, free from the love of money. So now he's moving to contentment or covetousness as it regards uh, the stuff of money. Money is not bad. God has made lots of Christians very, very wealthy. Uh, I, I tend to think he does that for those who know how to use their money in a way that's consistent with uh, Luke chapter uh, 16. Um, it's a parable there about the unrighteous steward. Uh, but people who use their money in a way that, that honors God, be satisfied of what you have. Like that's the very heart of, of contentment. Uh, he would say that about um, your spouse, um, your home, your automobile, you know, looking at things from the standpoint that God, at the end of the day, God will provide what I need, maybe not all that I want, but but what I need. But if I recognize that what I have is from God, then then it's to be content in God's provision. Um, for he himself has said that, that is, uh, God said, I will never leave you or abandon you. That's out of, out of Deuteronomy 31. Uh, the point is, you think about them being out in the wilderness. I mean, they depended on God for food and water, like in clothes and everything that was provided. And, and God says, I won't leave you. I won't abandon you. I, I'm going to see to your needs. Jesus said the same thing in, in, in the New Testament. He says, you know, God knows what you need. Uh, he knows about a bird falling, a sparrow hitting the ground. He knows what you need. Therefore, we may boldly say, that is, we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 118, verse 6, the Lord is my helper, but look what he adds to it. He, he wanted to find a psalm verse or a verse in the Old Testament to use that was said not only by somebody who recognized God as the one who fulfilled their needs, but somebody who was persecuted like his readers are, who could still say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. I will not fear what, what uh, you know, what a, it could be a question or a statement, but what man can do to me. Th that is, those who are, are uh, uh, in the midst of persecution, he says, be content with what you have, even in the persecution, even in the trial. So you could say, uh, God's my helper, and I don't need to be afraid of what man can do. Remember in chapter 10, what specifically had happened? The men, the persecutors, had stolen their stuff and put some of them uh, in prison. So this is a beautiful picture of contentment. 
let me read through the rest of this uh, and I'll, I'll make a couple of comments, but there is one really rich illustration here. Uh, verse seven says to remember your leaders. So there's leaders in the local church. And when you read the New Testament, um, it doesn't dictate all the aspects of how a church is to be governed, but it is clear that the Apostle Paul would establish elders uh, in, in the local churches who uh, had the primarily uh, the primary leadership position. Uh, the very word deacon means servant. It doesn't uh, give any indication in the New Testament that a deacon has any authority whatsoever other than what is given by the, the elders. And that's, that's kind of my just high level. Uh, but what he tells these guys is remember them. Uh, because why? They've spoken God's word to you. So we, we in, in a modern church, we place a lot of burdens on a pastor. We we want him and in some churches her to, to do all these different things. But but um, their first and primary responsibility is to speak the word of God with clarity and conviction, with an idea of equipping um, those who are in the church. And, uh, in, and I mean in a local church setting. He says, as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. That's a powerful uh, statement. You realize that we talk a lot about discipleship, but outside of the Gospels, there is no reference. Um, you know, like in all the epistles, disciple doesn't even occur one time. But what you do see is this idea of imitating um, those who are, are, of course, are not perfect, but they are, are, they are faithful. And that's what he's saying here. Imitate is the word is the verb mimeomai. In the old days, you had a word mimeograph, which was essentially the precursor of modern photocopiers. But uh, the word mimic also comes from this kind of word. You know, mimic those. Uh, this sounds like Hebrews eleven. Remember, Hebrews eleven talked about what faith looks like, and then he gave a long laundry list of of examples of pillars of the faith. And, and it wasn't some amorphous faith that had no content. It was that God had told them uh, specific things about the future. And these people reoriented their lives around it. And they lived faithful to God's word. And, and they're the people that were in the Bible, right? Now he's saying, now let me talk about the people that are in the church, people that you see on Sunday, people you know, and, and especially the, these leaders who has spoken God's word to you. And the implication is they also live it out in their lives. And he says, imitate their faith or their faithfulness. Okay. Not talking about how they trusted Christ, but how they trust Christ now. In other words, not talking about how they became a Christian, but imitating their faithfulness now as they, they follow the lead of the, of the Lord. And, and that becomes a good picture of, of what, of what we mean by discipleship in a new Testament, uh, a sense it goes beyond, mere instruction to providing a model or example. So if, if you are engaging and trying to engage in discipleship, whether it's in a real formalized setting or just meeting with somebody, uh, maybe one-on-one, -on -one, uh, to impart some, some instruction is part of it. But to be this model, someone they could imitate. I've had a few people in my life that were that person um, that I think the world of. And if I didn't have them, I would be very, um, what's the word, um, uh, dis uh, discouraged because we need to see some Christians in our lives that really do walk the walk and not just it be Moses and Noah and Daniel. We need some, some people that we know in our lives that are authentic. And uh, he thinks they have some leaders in their church that are. He says, Jesus, this is a, the verse that I, I think I memorized as a child, the same yesterday, today, and forever. If that's true, he has to be God, because ain't nobody else the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, the, the theological term is immutability. It's not that Jesus never changed in any sense, right? Jesus, uh, at a point in time, became human, took on human flesh. We call it the incarnation. But in his essence, his character, his attributes, what the, the theologian Charles Ryrie called perfections, um, Jesus is unchanging. Uh, forever. And, and uh, that being the case, that being the case, false teachers, the kind that the New Testament really jumps on here in Hebrews 11, book of Galatians, 1 John, Jude, a lot of these books, 2 Peter chapter 2, they have false teachers in the background. And, and that the thing you can take to, to the bank is that the false teachers will teach something contrary to Hebrews chapter 13, 
verse 8. Jesus, in his person, the same yesterday and day forever, they will teach something that is contrary to a sound doctrine about the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, Jehovah's Witness, you, you take the group, um, and, and the thing they most often attack is the deity of Christ, which is inherent in this statement. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he says, don't be led astray by these, these strange doctrines. And he goes on and says, um, uh, it's good for the heart or the mind to be established by grace and not by food regulations. Uh, food regulations, just a shorthand for uh, all of the, the sort of uh, outward aspects of, of the law that, that and he's, by the way, he's not saying that you can't keep those regulations, but, uh, you know, if you don't want to eat bacon, don't eat bacon. But what he's saying is uh, growing up in the Lord, the sanctification process it's, it's going to be by grace enablement, okay? Not by the by the law of Moses. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that in Galatians uh, chapter three, verse three, very explicitly. And 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 this whole book, though, has been about the fact that we have a new covenant in Jesus Christ, and that's what he's building on. He's really saying, you know, um, your heart needs to be established in this new covenant, which is which is built on grace. And, and not in the old, which was built on rules. The old was not designed, he said, throughout this book, we've already covered this, but it wasn't designed to, you know, to save you. It wasn't designed to purify your conscience. It was designed to show you what uh, holiness is and what sin looks like. He says, uh, since those who observe them, the food regulations, in other words, those who observe law of Moses, they've not benefited or profited he doesn't mean it's bad to have observed those things, but they didn't do anything in terms of bringing you to salvation, which is what the new covenant is all about. Um, we have an altar, he says, from which those who worship at the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. This is a reference to um, Yom Kippur. So it's it's a, it's a, a, a Hebrew, a Jewish person would pick up on it right away. Uh, when, when you... Um, uh, did Yom Kippur, and this is out of Leviticus 16, there was a sacrifice made on the altar in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, but but you then, you took the animal outside the the, the, the camp, and, and you burned it up, okay? You burned it up outside the camp, and 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 what he's thinking is a comparison between the Old Covenant and, and, and you know, the, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur under the Old Covenant, Versus what happened in the new covenant, where no sacrifice was made in the in the earthly temple in Jerusalem, it was made in the heavenly temple, and and yet and yet Jesus died on a Roman cross at Golgotha, as it were outside the camp, outside the city walls. So he says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood burned outside the camp, that's a specific reference to part of the Yom Kippur procedure. Um, you would burn it. And then, and then, and then, and then eat it. He says, in contrast, right? Jesus also suffered outside the gate, what we call uh, Golgotha or Calvary, so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him, to Jesus, outside the camp. Now, I think he's using this outside the camp. You know, it made sense in the in Leviticus because they were camping out in the wilderness. But what he's talking about. Is is this book, you know, he's made reference to the tabernacle. It seems the temple's still standing. Uh, the book has made reference earlier to the likelihood of, likely made reference to the idea that Jerusalem is going to be uh, attacked and destroyed uh, shortly. And, and, and he spent a lot of time, and we spent a lot of time in Hebrews 12, talking about how from the writer's perspective, uh, we have a new city, the new Jerusalem. And it is it is it is as if we are standing before that new city even today, even though we're not going to fully realize that in our experience for a time to come. And and the old city, he says, and in the old temple and all that, that's going to be shaken pretty soon. That's what he said in Hebrews 12. It's going to be shaken, and that's what happened in AD 70. Uh, it, it was removed. And and his point here about going outside the camp, um, Jesus went outside the camp on a Roman cross. And 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 he he was humiliated and he was considered a reproach. These people are being persecuted, and they've been toying with the idea of of going back to synagogue, of sort of reuniting with those who still worship 
inside the camp, at the earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple that's fixing to be destroyed. He says, don't do that. He says, we don't, we don't have an enduring city here. Talking about Jerusalem, it's not an enduring city. Why? It's fixing to get torn down, and it, and it did. Instead, we seek the one to come. Therefore, this is why he says we should go to the camp outside the city. It's just a metaphor. Stay away from the temple worship, even if it means persecution. Stay away from getting back into the old system of, of law keeping, even if it means persecution, because you have something better. And it's outside the camp, and that means you're going to have, during this lifetime, you're going to have some difficulty and persecution. But that city is not continual one. We have a city to come, and it's the city he has spoken about in chapter 12. and chapter 11, he said that the Abraham was, uh, while he was on this earth, was looking for the city whose builder and architect is God. That's the city to come. Therefore, through Jesus, through him, let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise. This is in contrast to going to the temple to offer offer a sacrifice of an animal. Um, we're under a new covenant, and the new covenant has sacrifices to be made. Um, and, and they are primarily two sacrifices, but they're not animals, you know, and they're not Jesus dying again. He, he died once for all time. The Hebrews has said that several times. Our two sacrifices as, as priests under the new covenant where, where we have Jesus as the high priest, we have immediate access to the throne of God, according to Hebrews 4, so that we can enter boldly. Our sacrifice is, one, the sacrifice of praise. Um, and, and we think of praise, you know, in terms of what we do on Sunday. And, of course, it includes that, except that he says to continually offer it up. This means it's, it's not a Sunday event, but an everyday event. It, it's not always a singing, of course, but that's a part of it. But to to offer up in our, our prayer and by our lives, um, praise to God. He says, the fruit of the lips that confess his name. Um, this means that you have God in your conversation with people. It, uh, in a very positive way, God has completely attained your words, in, in, in a sense, completely uh, transformed it. Um, the other part of it, is don't neglect to do what's good and to share. In other words, do for others. So he has these twin ideas. We might say love God, and that's going to get expressed in how we speak about him in, in praise and so forth, and love others, do what's good for them, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. Um, obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep the watch over your souls. Um, that word souls is, is, a, is a unique term we've talked about before. It came up in, in uh, Hebrews 9, as I recall, where he, met, he references the salvation of your soul. Your soul isn't your spirit. Your soul is your temporal experience of life. Uh, it's, 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 it's all that you, you do and think and accomplish. And in, in, in a sense, it's, it's your, your life, in a sense. And then the Bible will often translate it life. But don't read the word, a spirit there. Um, your leaders, your pastor, your elder at church uh, has um, a duty uh, uh, to to try to equip you. And, and he says here, uh, obey your leaders. That's something, uh, especially in this country, we have a real problem with with authority. So we've we've tried to transform this and we have uh, pastors who are hired by deacon boards and other supervisory boards and things like that that are wholly unscriptural. Hey, Annette, got a question? Yeah, now that you came in on it, um, it's kind of off subject, but you brought it up. So um, I've been considering that a lot about the word of God is like a two-edged sword, sundering the spirit and the soul. Mm -hmm. And and know that we are spirit, soul, and body. So like, what happens when we die? Our spirit goes to God. What happens to our soul? I mean, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the body, of course, goes to the dust. So where does my soul go? No, that's an excellent question. So so the, the word soul, it's the Greek uh, psuche, P-S-U-C-H-E, psuche, you know, to try to put it in English. Um, yeah. is the root word for the word psychology. Psychology is the study of the soul, although most psychologists assume you have no soul. Um, in uh, the hundred or some odd uses of soul in the New Testament, 
two or three times possibly it is used more or less for the immaterial aspect of our, our person that is like our spirit it can have that meaning it almost never does um, uh, the leading greek lexicon bdag kind of indicates that and if you do a word study um, you'll find that in a couple of instances it more or less means spirit in a couple of instances the idea of being a soul just means that you're an animate living being but in the broad swath of occurrences, it is our temporal aspect of, of life. Um, you know, um, when you look at your life and we talk about a life well lived, we're not thinking about the, the fact that the person was alive. We're thinking about what they accomplished, what they did, maybe the fact that they uh, were people with a, a generous heart and, and all those things. And, and, and Jesus would say in Matthew 16, those who, in, in the translation there uses life, but let me read what it really says, those who would keep their soul will lose it, and those who lose their soul will keep it. He's speaking to his disciples, and, and what he's really saying is, is that, you know, when you make a, a decision to follow God, like those people in Hebrews 11, um, you're giving up on the soul you could have had, your experience of life, maybe climbing the corporate ladder, whatever it is you think you were going to do. Um, and you're taking on the soul that God wanted for you, the experience, temporal experience of life that is going to be characterized by your pursuit of God, reorienting your life around his word. Uh, people say you can't take it with you when you die. That's only half true. Um, the things you do in this life, the words you speak, the thoughts you think, and and the deeds that are good or bad toward others um, do get taken uh, beyond the grave in the sense that when we give our account to Jesus for our lives, not with a view to him beating us down or sending us to purgatory for our sins, but him uh, rewarding us through uh, giving us commendation, like well done, good and faithful servant, and some other kinds of rewards um, uh, that is the sense in which our soul, or you might say our soul life, the, 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 the way we spent our life gets translated into eternity. Uh, it's clear in the scriptures, people will have a memory of things before their, their mortal death. But at the same time, we're, we're implored to live a good soul life that honors God, that glorifies God. Paul said, in everything you do, glorify God. And, and that, that soul life, uh, is 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 part of it's our experience of of this life God gave us here, but it translates into in eternity in the in the in the form of these rewards. So your spirit goes to be with heaven. You stand before Christ and give an accounting for your soul life, and and uh, and and the, the degree to which you were faithful. And Paul says some of that may be wood, hay, and stubble. In First Corinthians three, it burns up. Some is uh, gold, you know, silver, precious stones, and and that remains. He says. Right. And in what sense does it remain? It remains in the commendation and the rewards that you're given. And of course, you'll have these positive memories in some sense of that. Um, I hope that helps some. It's a very different way of uh, thinking to the soul because I in English, it doesn't mean that. Go ahead. Just just a deeper. I, I mean, I'm a troubled. I'm a troubled soul and mm -hmm. um, coming out of many different things and when I look forward to being absent from the body and being present with the Lord, one of the things we know, um, whether it's in the millennial or with the new heaven and the new earth, is that mm -hmm. there will be no more weeping and there will be no more, you know, sorrow. Mm -hmm. How can it be possible if I have to bring this this um, tortured soul with me? <laughs> yeah, because because you have to not think of your soul is 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 in in this sense is your experience of life and 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 for every one of us that has goods and bads it has regrets it has episodes of suffering some came because bad people did things to us that that we can't forget you know there's no such thing as that some happens because we've made our own choices um we have one candle to burn and and we need to do it as faithfully as as we're able to by the grace enablement of god uh, this idea of a Bama judgment uh, is is not with a view, in my in my opinion, but there there are those who differ with me. There's not with a view to punishment, but with a review with a view to God uh, giving approval to the things in our life that were done well and, and godly and faithful. It seems that that happens before, okay, before. So perhaps sometime during the tribulation, I would I would say. 
it happens before the kingdom begins. And, and it's clear from scripture that when the kingdom begins, what, what you said is exactly right. There'll be no more weeping and all that. I do think, and 1 John explicitly says it in, in chapter uh, 2, verse 28, he talks about having the possibility of having some shame at the Bema because you had one candle to burn and you said, hey, it's good enough if I'm in heaven, I'll live the way I want. And he says, when you get there, you ain't gonna think that way. But But after that, Every tear is going to be wiped away, and and you'll be in the in the kingdom, and and, and forever. It's not a you know I mean, we think of a millennium, but the kingdom lasts forever, and 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 there will be no suffering or sorrow. So I, I hope that helps. But we're all going to give an account for ourselves, and and that's the and you look. He's fixing to connect it. Look how he connects it. He's obey your leaders and to submit to them, because why? They're keeping the watch over your soul life. It's good to think of it that way. Your suke. Why are they doing that? Is those who will have to give an account. You see, those who are your pastors and, and so forth, they're going to give an account. James chapter 3, verse 1 says the judgment is more severe for the teachers. He's not talking yeah. about whether they go to heaven or hell. When you stand up and say, as I do now, you know, the Bible says, God says, um, um, I'm held to a much stricter standard, both to model it and, and to not be careless, lazy, or flippant with the word of God. And in the church context, your pastor can't make you do the right thing, but he has a responsibility to give you a good teaching, good advice, and sometimes uh, a slap on the hand or stepping onto the toes, because he's going to give an account for how he did it. And we got a lot of people delivering a cheap, uh, a flimsy McSermons on Sunday that don't honor the word of God, but carry a Bible around as a, as a mere prop. And, and they, these are pastors. They are not going to like giving an account. They're not going to like that they lived their life and they were the pastor and they had no rewards whatsoever. It all burned up. Uh, you, they want to be able to do this with joy and not with grief. This picture is a pastor who giving an account for his ministry has grief over that person he ministered to, but he can never get them in the right direction not his fault but he has great sadness uh and and for that would be unprofitable for you well let me read the last few verses we'll come to a close and then after that uh, uh and if you and if you have some other questions let's talk about it you're raising good questions and i'm glad for everyone to get get to to, to hear them uh and 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 we as christians have got to have this kind of openness that annette has shared because um, we too often put on the Sunday best and instead of just being authentic with, with those around us, uh, he, he goes on, he says, um, pray for us. So, so we don't know who the us is, the writer of Hebrews and other people with him, but as he'll make a, a point in a minute, it seems like they're in Italy, which raises the idea that there's a very likelihood they could be in Rome. Uh, pray for us. We're convinced that uh, we have a clear conscience. Why? Uh, well, they have a clear conscience before God. They want to conduct themselves honorably in everything. And I urge you all the more to pray that I might be restored to you very soon. So they know who the writer is and and, and are praying for his restoration, uh, you know, that he can come and, and visit them in person. And now may the God of peace who brought up uh, from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is the great shepherd. Uh, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, that's the new covenant, not the old. The old is gone. It's gone now, and it was gone when the writer wrote this book. Uh, and, and the book of Hebrews belabors that. It's why anyone who teaches the Torah keeping cannot get through the book of Hebrews. And in fact, they don't want to have anything to do with it. Um, he says, um, may, may think about this prayer. May the God of peace, look at verse 21, equip you. And this is where pastors have a role of helping uh, through their instruction and, and counsel. Equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us what's pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And then finally, he, he says, brothers and sisters, I urge you to receive this message. I urge you to receive the entire book of Hebrews. That's what he's talking about. This message of exhortation. The whole book of Hebrews was a message that in the face of persecution, you should endure in faithfulness to God's word. He told you all these things about the future, about the coming kingdom, 
about the rewards, about the coming rest, all these things, even though life is difficult and challenging, be faithful, he says. And uh, mm -hmm. I see uh, uh, Echo, thank you for uh, uh, being here. It says Echo on the chat. Thank you for being here. Maybe we can see you in a week. We'll jump into James. So uh, uh, he, he just says, I urge you to receive this message I've written to you. Um, which means Hebrews needs to be received by us in the modern church, and we need to we need to, to wrestle with it. Um, he says, "Be aware that our brother Timothy has been released. Timothy's out of jail. Uh, if he comes soon enough, you'll be uh, that. That also will give you some indication of some believe Paul wrote this, you know, because Paul was associated with Timothy. I've explained before that I think maybe Paul did not write it, but it's it's not a big deal." Um, uh, Timothy is going to come and he'll be with me when I see you. Greet all your leaders and the saints. Those who are from Italy send you greetings, which suggests the book was written from Italy. Grace be with you. So anyway, I wanted I don't have a lot to say about that tail ending, but uh, I wanted to have gotten through it so we can jump in James next time.